This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven to you. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen, Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. Trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I am Blake Howard, and as promised, Joe Lynch, director extraordinaire, is joining me. His resume includes things like Everly. Mayhem is his latest one that is doing the festival circuit at the moment. He's deep in production of another flick, but I know him first, as I said previously, for Knights of Badaston, which I really enjoyed. I know he cringed at the beginning of the last episode. He is a heat aficionado. Uh, that uh, I, I'm just thrilled to be able to chat to uh, 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 about this movie and he's been so supportive and thank you again Joe but we've had an epic one minute conversation we only talked about one minute one minute of this movie I know <laughs> I, I'm terrified at how long that last minute was I, I think you're it. gonna have to start calling you know one heat hours or something because or or we should just like the, the minutiae that we go into it we should be going like one heat second <laughs> And because we could like I, I could sit here and, and watch this movie and watch every shot. Like I remember when Roger Ebert would, would do these classes where he would break down every shot of Citizen Kane. And back then I was just discovering Citizen Kane and I would go like, how the fuck do you do that? Like, okay. how do you break down every shot? Now I get it, you know, because, you know, for Roger Ebert, you know, Citizen Kane had a, had a different resonance for him than it did for me. Yeah. Whereas... Heat is kind of my Citizen Kane. Yes. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to I'm gonna fucking drop the gauntlet I'm, right now. I'm right there with but you. I'm right there with it, you. It really is this movie that not only like I was listening to a previous episode and you guys were talking about like how Heat is the ultimate 11 o'clock you get home from drinks kind of movie. And it is that. It is that movie that if you are watching it 47 minutes in and it just happens to be on cable or whatever in pan and scan, heavily edited <laughs> All the curses are, you know, um, you know, she's got a great butt, you know, like all, <laughs> like that that heavily truncated version. I'm still watching it, you yes. know. But while while it's still infinitely watchable, it's something. It, it's a piece of cinematic art that I don't think comes around very often. Like the only other movie that I can think of, like in the '90s, that had that kind of like impact on me, but also like that kind of impact. I think moving forward in that realm would be like LA confidential. Yeah. You know, where it's another epic Warner brothers, you know, crime drama, you know, but is so ingrained in both storytelling and character that it feels very classic. If you watch it today, because they just don't make movies like that anymore. No. And the, the thing that's hard for me watching heat is that's my heat perfect double like, feature recommendation, by the way, if people oh, are like, yeah. what movie do you pair heat with? I'm like LA confidential. Watch both of those together. And you've got pretty much the best, Best crime cinema of all time, back to back. You know that's their, their LA crime, Mwah, just sublime. Now here's the question: Which one goes first? Ah, <sighs> oh, oh, right, oh. right, because it's the first thing I thought of, and I'm going, well, of course it's got to be LA Confidential based on t- you know based on the period, but mm, I don't know. It's got a different like it's it's even just based on the endings. You almost want you want the perfect ending to a double feature to be something that's a little more hopeful, and then obviously L.A. Confidential, you know, gives you that. Whereas Heat kind of 
places you into like Empire Strikes Back land at the end of <laughs> its, you know, its episode, which funny enough, they both end on the same type of shot. Yes. People looking at something from afar, from behind, you know. Um, but, you know, heat is something that you look at it today and, and the only thing that dates it are the clothes. The only thing that dates it are, you know, some Maybe of the, the like, phones. Maybe the play, phones. phones or whatever. It looks like it was shot yesterday. Yeah. And it feels like it was shot yesterday. Like if you look at any of other you know, Michael Mann's movies, you know, since then, they always feel like, you know, he's always been called a contemporary director. Hmm. But I, I, I feel like, you know, Heat was both of the moment and ahead of its time and has aged so perfectly that we can go back. Like this is one of those movies that I just I, like I'm counting the minutes until I get to show my kids. You know, separately, of course, because there, there's a couple <laughs> bit of an age difference. But, like, this is something that you can, like, savor over. The problem is, is that I'm going to do what you'd probably do with your, you know, your, your, your daughter or son? No, little little girl, Hazel. Okay. All right. So, you know, maybe, maybe you might want to wait a little longer for her. But, um, <laughs> yeah, she's 11 months. I, th- I think I've got some time. Okay. Yeah. you got a little time. But I'm going to be that dad who's going to be like, okay, in this moment right here, you see that shot right there? You see that nothingness? Yeah, that's, that's Neil Macaulay looking into the darkness of chaos. <laughs> like, I, and they'd be like, dad, shut up. I just want to watch the goddamn movie. Yeah. I'm going to be that dad. Yeah, when like, it comes to heat... Dad, if you pause this movie one more time to explain something to me, I'm going to kill you. I'm going, I'm going to kill you right now. And you're going to go, look, I'm, I'm sorry. You just have to... If you just, I've done that to my wife. I do that to my wife. I pause... Look, look at this. I, I do it all the time too. And, and thankfully my wife is actually one of those few people that is interested in, or she, she acts like she does really well. But, um, like I, I enjoy like going like, oh yeah, you know that, you know, that scene in, you know, in the, the coffee shop, like there was this big rumor that, it, you know, they weren't really there, but it's actually confirmed by man that they were there. And she'd be like, really? Wow. Oh, okay. Like, and she's sitting there going like, I just, I just want to watch America's Got Talent. God damn it. Like, really? Again? Um, but anyway, so, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to mention before we jump into the minute is weirdly enough, like I was so obsessed with this movie that, uh, I had a video class, uh, in, in film school, uh, in Syracuse where, you know, you know, we had our film classes and everything, but there was kind of like an experimental video class. It was just something that was different, you know, using a different medium, Mm -hmm. but still using the same kind of aesthetics. And for my thesis, I took the famous uh, heist scene from Heat, the one in the middle, uh, and cut it in with footage from the Northridge shootings that happened around 96, 97. And what's crazy, and, and here, two, two weird things. One, I, you know, I, I would, I, like I took, it was, I think it was like Primetime Live or something like that. It was with um, this, this news guy who was kind of explaining what was happening with like news reports and and real footage and uh, real footage of the uh, of these two guys who wore body armor who were walking down the street during this heist and just shooting up the place and but if you watch the footage i remember seeing it when i first saw it on the news and i'm like this looks like real like real life heat. heat yeah and at the time and i'm going i'm not moving to la screw that <laughs> And then, like for this for this like this project, it just kind of came to me because, like we were saying before, you know, I'm the guy that likes to kind of cut together, mash up like music and movies together on with two VCRs. So I thought, what if I took the heist heist scene from Heat and the video footage from uh, what is it uh, uh, from the from the shooting in this news report and just see what happens? Just like let's let's I'm just going to start cutting and. Let's see what kind of parallels happen. 
I found about 15 moments in both and the shooting that were exact. Like, for example, you know the part where Neil pulls out of that little hatchback when he, when he saves Chris and he, and he drives off and everything and, yes. and, uh, and Vincent shooting after him? There is a moment when the guys are trying to get away. They jump into a hatchback. The fucking back of the hatchback <laughs> flips up. And they hit a bunch of shopping carts and they drive off. It cut together like it was footage <laughs> shot from fucking feet. Now, there's absolutely no way that that would actually be like planned. Like these two no. ding dongs who actually did the thing in Northridge were absolutely not as methodical and as, <laughs> and uh, precise as Neil Macaulay and his crew. But the, just the, why? Like this was the first time, kind of like what you're doing here, Blake, with with this podcast. I sat there and frame fucked every single moment from that heist. And found so many parallels and so many different deeper things about that movie. And it was like one of the first times that I felt like, wow, this is, my, this is what it must be like to be Michael Mann in the edit room pouring over this footage and going like, what's the reason behind this? And what's the resonance of that? And like, what's the theme here? And, and like, it was, it was and somebody speeding up And speeding up and slowing down, I imagine that when you're in that, when you're diving into that heist, and we talked a little bit about it before is around when he just emphasizes silence, like when Bosco spoilers, when Bosco gets shot and, and the, the, you hear the gunshot and then he's down man just loves that, that breath of silence. There's just something that complete absence. And it's almost like, is that the character who's viewing Bosco because we're in their perspective? Is that the character sort of going silent as we're watching him because we we're trying to even, begin to process what's that like or or is it just an emphasis tool and slowing that down just even a one hair one second longer so that then you can move on to the next thing and increase the pace and the pace is back to being frantic again it's those moments that i that keep resonating with me is like silence and skewing what is what your your thoughts of what reality are um Mm -hmm. in those moments and i think that that if you're in that you would just be going wow, like how manipulated, beautifully manipulated have yeah. I been in this scene because it's so, it feels like it should be authentic, documentary, real, but then it's like that stylization comes to the fore and, and you, you start to and really truly almost, appreciate it. It's almost like anti-manipulation because in most cases, at least with audiences today, we're so used to like trailers going, yeah. or even like moments being like accentuated with like loud noises or sound effects design. You know, and again, like I'm guilty of it too. When you see mayhem, it's just fucking it's sound design parts everywhere. But it, but it, it but it keeps the thing moving. It keeps it keeps the audience juiced and they're 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 constantly like on the edge of their seat. And here, and he does it in almost all of his movies. Like if you look at the the amount of silences in the moments in Last of the Mohicans, it's mm. and they're all done in moments that are like inherently sad. And I think there are moments here in Heat where man likes to slow things down, like like. There's two moments in the heist where, you know, where he uses he doesn't shoot in slow-mo. He shoots normal speed and then actually like frame prints it down. Yeah. Like the moment when, when Macaulay realizes, oh shit, they're about to get shot when they're driving off yeah. and he brings up his gun. And then when um uh 
there's a moment I think later on where uh, Vincent's trying to shoot someone too. Yeah, where he's, uh, where he's trying to shoot, where he's trying to take out Michael, played by Tom Sizemore. There's that moment, where, and and it's similar framing too on both of their faces. It's like a moment of realization that I have an opportunity that I need to shoot. So both of them have yep. that that converse. For him, it's like the roadblock, and Neil's just like boom, brings that up, bang, 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 bang. And then for Vincent, it's like I've got to line up Michael here because he's got that little girl. And they both and they're have both that moments moment. that are like, and they're both moments that are like pre, like they're they're hinging more on the external breathing of each of those of those mm, guys yes rather than jumping in with like a big score beat or a sound thing like it's it's allowing the audience to get inside the heads of these guys like that's the reason why and there's a shot in this next minute where it's a it's a classic michael mann shot but michael mann's got this thing where he doesn't use point of view shots he sticks the camera right behind the ear Mm. Of of people that he wants to kind of dive into their point of view, and he does it famously in um in the Insider, like so much so that like half the movie is shot like that. But there's moments in 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 Heat and you know later on where like because he's essentially taking a very wide angle lens, and what you what you get with that is you get perspective, you get their perspective, what they're looking at. Like in the minute that we're going to look at, we see what Neil is looking at, um, which is a little you know kind of esoteric, but it's still it still gets you in the mind of whoever that person is, you know, and that's just something that like the beautiful kind of symbiosis that he has and the beautiful relationship that he has with Dante Spinati oh. for all movies. Like, so, like he was, Spinati was my jam for the longest time, you know, like yeah. that I just knew how to make grit and art look like it was effortlessly put on, on screen. And, you know, man just has a way of finding new tropes for essentially getting his point across like he could go with the standard point of view shot but he doesn't like he likes to do something where you're kind of you're so thick in like you're so close in with the character that you can practically smell the aqua velva on their neck and <laughs> or see the sweat beating down there or see like oh wow someone didn't shave this morning you know it, it's it's those little things that like and that again, that attention to detail that makes you you can't not admire and respect what Michael Mann does as a filmmaker. You just can't. And Dante Spinotti shot both Heat and LA Confidential. There you go. See? So, <laughs> so you can essentially say that it, it could be a Dante Spinotti double feature and exactly. that will that will definitely ruin your date. Like, <laughs> if, you, if you ever try to, you know, to the opposite sex, like, hey, you want to come over and watch a double feature? What are we watching? Dante Spinotti double feature. <laughs> Hello? Hello, are you still there? No? Okay. Damn it. That's not going to work out. Bye. Okay, Rush Hour. Rush Hour special features. Well, well, we'll just watch Rush Hour double feature. It'll be fine. We'll just watch no? Rush Hour 1 and then we'll play it again. Um, yeah. Guys, we're going to dive into what is now the 22nd minute um, of Michael Mann's crime opus from 1995, Heat. And we've left the last minute staring into the darkness, into the great beyond, this tendril of the great beyond. We're seeing like the explosion out of all of these different character threads that are about to happen. It's like this is where they diverge before they eventually converge at the end of the film or a lot of them start to converge in the wrap-up of the film. So let's watch this bit. You guys can have a listen along with Joe and I and then we'll be back to unpack it because it has probably one of the most iconic shots in the entire film in this minute. Again, a couple of great minutes to chat about with Joe. So here we go.
Hey. Where's the rest? We're late. Ooh, you look too good to go out. Let's just jump you right. Damn it! Damn it! <laughs> this is the only thing I don't like about One Heat Minute, Blake. It's, it's just not enough. It's just not enough. Just I not enough. It. I totally get, but <laughs> like, these are one of those moments where, like, there's some moments where you go, like, that was a perfect nugget of of heatness. I'm glad I got that. It's like just a you know perfect little hot pocket. But uh, that's what they should call it. each minute should be called a hot pocket, yes. a heat pocket, or something. But th- this one was like, oh god, I just want to keep going because you know this is this is where we start getting into you know the we've seen the the more uh, kind of business side of th- at least two of these characters now. Yes, this is where we start getting into what we were talking about before about the kind of whole soap opera ness of the movie. Yes, where these you know these two separate scenes easily could be cut out of the film you know like, or at least half of it you know absolutely like, if you if you're trying to do an uh, a smash edit of this thing to get it down to you know a 90 minute runtime you would kill the minute we've just watched in a heartbeat you kill this entire a- scene um but it's as you said there's a meticulousness and a fastidiousness that man has that he's like no 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 this is these are the most these quiet scenes are the most intimate and important scenes and i and we we get introduced in this minute to Charlene Chahelis um Ashley Judd who is just a is a towering force in this in this film and i think it is treated with such a level of respect that you kind of um it's kind of shocking when you think back on sort of movies that make you feel like the wives don't know what's going on with their criminal husbands. Oh, like it's, yeah. it's like yep. complete oblivion. Like you think, of course she knows, you know, like it's like any married couple, you know, that your husband goes to work and what they do and you, you know, you share funds and you plan and you budget. And, and it's just something that the more that I watch it, the more I appreciate it. Like, of course she is so woke to what he's doing and she's got to be the adult in this. And you only just get a, you know, a morsel of it right here. But I, I, I want to shout out to Ashley Judd. Like she is just, she's a force in this movie. She's outstanding in this movie. Well, she, she's hitting kind of like, not to plug my own movie, but I'm going to do it. Mayhem. <laughs> there you go. Uh, in, in Mayhem, we have this actress, uh, Samar Weaving, fellow Aussie. Yes. Um, who is, I'm going to say it right now. She's going to be a fucking movie star. Like, but she's, she's like hitting this cusp at the time of this recording. She just had the babysitter come out in the States on Netflix. Yeah, and just uh, came out here as well, which I've seen, which is, which is a lot of fun. It's, uh, it's bonkers McG- as fuck. It's, it's, it's McGeed, but it's, uh, it's fun. It's a bit bonkers. But, she, but she's she, fantastic. She's fucking fantastic she's in fantastic. that. She's fantastic. And you know, everything that she's done between that and Mayhem, she's got Picnic and Hanging Rock. There's a, like a remake of yeah, series. series yeah. My friend it. Aaron Glenane uh, is in that series as well, and, he, and we've been talking back and forth, and he's like, Blake, it's just... The, the, he's, he's just he said it's fantastic you know he's that's what she was saying and like and samara's in that new martin mcdonough movie three billboards the oh. blah, blah 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 you know but you know this actress is like hitting she's about to hit and you get excited when you see her it's kind of mm. like what margot Robbie was like a couple of years ago when we first saw her in wolf of wall street you're like who the fuck is this <laughs> yes. and i remember when when he came out this was ashley judd's holy fuck it's her yeah. Because she had just come off of Ruby in Paradise, which was kind of her breakout. Mm. But I had seen her earlier that year in Wayne Wang's Smoke, which if you haven't seen, I could not recommend it higher. You don't want to put any more money in, in you know, Harvey Weinstein's coffers by renting it or whatever. But seek it out because it's this amazing 
kind of, uh, I guess, like ensemble pastiche of what it's like to live in Brooklyn, New York. And Ashley Judd has this one scene in it, and she is so amazing in it that you like you walk out and you go like, I just saw Harvey Keitel and William Hurt share a beautiful scene together, and I can't, I cannot stop thinking about Ashley Judd in that movie. Yes. So when she shows up here, and really the first time that you're seeing her, you're seeing her in 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 a world where. You know, of course, you would see the wife hanging out by the pool in this beautiful, you know, uh, this beautiful house, and she's counting money, like, yeah. and the way she's counting money is not counting money like I'm doing the bills, counting money. She's counting money like a bookie. Yes, you know, like yes. she's counting, she's <laughs> counting money like like she has done this many times before. And if you listen to the commentary, which I know you have, like when Nan was talking about how he was creating the character with her, how. They came up with this like intricate backstory about how she used to hook at truck stops, yes. you know, and, and how like that's how she was kind of making ends meet. And, you know, it's a matter of meeting the right bad guy or something like that. And how, they, you know, they probably met in you know penitentiary and she became kind of like his jail wife. And l- luck have it, he came out and kind of made good on his, on his end. And she's reaping the benefits. Now, this is, you know, this is like what, four or five years removed from Carmela Soprano f- hearing something yes. uh, like in the back of uh. house and a fucking machine gun, you know, there, there was that moment of awareness that I think like people thought at the time when they saw Sopranos, like, man, that's fucking progressive. Like, holy shit, the wife's in on it too. Yeah. But I mean, they've been doing that forever. They've been doing that since the Godfather or whatever, but yeah. here she like, and, and you know, it's unfortunate. That's why I was like, Oh no, keep going because <laughs> it's like only get one side of this relationship. And, what what we end on is probably the most uncomfortable kiss I've ever seen in a movie before because maybe Val's got those like wonderful thunder thighs that he can kind of contort himself in a way that like, a, like like a like a ballerina to be able to kiss her like that. That does not look comfortable no. at all. And, and, for, and for either party, no, there, there's some neck issues going on there. It, it could look semi-romantic, but uh, he's so. That's what's so great about the next sequence, and we'll try and rope it back in. But it's about like. Uh, he he's so fluid and manic and crazy in this next sequence and she's just so still and so this is the moment where he's like getting in her face and sort of it, it, it doesn't feel right and it's and i love there's like like you said you start to get that there's a there's something different to her just living the high life by the way she's counting the money like she's ca- yeah. it feels like she's counting it a second time like are you are you telling me that this is how much money we just got from that job like that's ridiculous we need to live but, is she, but- she seems more like a partner, yes. and I think that's that's the that's the wonderful kind of dichotomy of this moment is that seconds before they have this quote unquote romantic, sexy Val Kilmer kiss, <laughs> you're seeing you're seeing her the way you would see a bookie behind uh you know b- behind a counter. She's at missing Easy the Finance. little hat. She's missing the little hat. Yeah, no, like 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 there's something about her that is very professional about it. She seems like a partner in crime more than she seems like a lover. And by having, by having that kind of convergence of two different styles where you, know, you have the home life, and you know, this is also coming off of Pacino's scene, which will, like De Niro's scene, which we'll talk about in a second, since we're kind of going backwards. Like, you're seeing what, what man is kind of presenting to you in the, in, the, in the first couple moments is, of course these guys have a life outside of you know, everything that's going on, on the scene, on the job, when the heat is close, you know, these guys do have 
lives and families and they do get together for big dinners you know in scenes later yes. which i love you know and they love have kids too. and they and they they are like joking around like it's like like it's just another wednesday night and not like holy shit we're about to steal millions of dollars very soon you know <laughs> there's no pressure at all like things feel status quo and then very quickly though man starts throwing in these like little bon mots and these little details again that make you start to question that reality that they think is real to them like yeah. there's probably a reason why chris is <coughs> upholding <coughs> sorry there's the <coughs> there's the cough <coughs> oh my we're, God, we're both the go. same we've got we've got stereo coughs so guys <laughs> i'm so excited about heat i just can't help myself <laughs> but, um you know there, there's something that like i can almost see it like they're doing it in a more psychological way to instill a sense of normalcy even though they know, or at least, you know, some of them, like Neil, maybe some others, not so easy, but they're still going to do it. Like, I can see Sizemore gone from his family like that. Oh. I could see, in a certain way, gone. Like, that, that's the, that is the, you know, the discipline that De Niro's character has instilled on these guys. But he's probably just, you know, keeping the wife and kids there so that, you know, there's part of him that can feel like, hey, I'm not a bad guy. You know what? I'm, I got a family. You know, it's that moment that like all criminals, you know, think like, what's going to get me out of this situation? And then they got a gun to their head. I got a wife and kids. Yeah. You know, if anything, yeah. that's probably life insurance for him, you know. But then when you get deeper and deeper into, you know, the film and then you get into their relationship, you start to see that, yes, they are business partners. And yes, she, you know, has her own kind of story tendril that's going on, her F, F story or G story or whatever. <laughs> She's got more shit going on, too. But at the same time, they do love each other because, mm. you know, mm. and, and it gets built and built and built so that by the time that, you know, he turns into uh, Val Kilmer circa Top Gun again, <laughs> and who would let that one go? Like, I remember seeing that, like, again with my wife recently. She's like, I wouldn't have let him gone. Like, I would, no way. How hot he is there. He's, you know, he's got, he's got the Top Gun cut going on. But, you know, that that moment when she basically gives gives him the word that was done out of love. You know, yes. that wasn't done. Save her ass. She's probably going to fucking you know, rot in a jail cell at some point. Her kids are going to be put in foster care. But love let him escape. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, it's more, this com really it's more complicated is than merely, you know, in her storyline. You know, uh, that's what I love about heat. It doesn't it doesn't try to be binary in any way. Like it allows her to be complex. It allows her to be looking for an out with, Mar you know, with Marciano's character later on in the film and allows mm -hmm. her to be looking for a better life for the sake of Dominic, but also doesn't, doesn't diminish her love for, for Chris. It's just that no. he's really, really hard to live with because he's doing this crazy job and he's still a gambling addict and he's still, yeah, exactly. Like he's he's an, as unreliable a husband as he is a business partner, yes. and she knows it. And yeah. you know whether she's trying to make an exit plan for herself or try to find her own sense of insurance for her kids. Yeah. You know, that's what makes those moments and those shots that happen before you get into the big heist when you're watching her making breakfast for her kids and all the other families are just kind of doing their thing because there is a life around this this heist that is going to affect everybody involved. Hmm. And that's something that we don't normally see in movies. And, and that, again, like that's the genius of man, being able to use the, whatever clout he had at that time to be able to, to, let, to let this movie, very much like, like, Los Angeles, like Los Angeles itself, let the movie breathe. 
let these characters feel like real fucking people. Yes. You know, that that's what makes it so perfect to both of us and I'm sure many other people as well because you do have these moments like like this moment with with Val and Ashley and even this you know the the moment previous with De Niro which again would other, you know even if it was the, one of the most gorgeous shots in the movie it <laughs> it it tells us nothing about the story it is no. purely there to allow the audience to feel the isolation and the loneliness that Neil Macaulay is He's missing something. There's something isolated. And then you immediately juxtapose that with, it's family life. (laughs) Each of these guys, you know, like, and and we don't, you know, we don't really get to see Tom Sizemore's family. We don't get to see the Treo clan, you know. But I think the point is across at that point. You know, like, like with our three major players on the poster, Val, Al, and Robert, we give you a peel back behind the curtain of what their domestic life is so that it doesn't just feel like a procedural. And, en- and enough of a shorthand, like you referenced the dinner, which I love, enough of a shorthand to see the interplay between like Michael and his wife, um, um, Elaine, played by Susan Trailer, like that, that you see the interplay enough to sort of be able to project, okay, well, this is what their lives must be like. But well, mm-hmm. I'll just jump on what you said there about Neil is, in the opening part of this minute, we get man in his characteristically perfect blue, cool, um, sort of the cobalt. It's, it really is. It's you know, James James Cameron has his blue. Michael Mann has, has his, his cobalt blue. blue. Yeah, and it's 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 unlike anything else. It's actually it's a filter. It's something that you would actually now be doing digitally. Yes. But this is something that was more of a chemical and a filter process that he and Spinati had been honing for years. I mean, that kind of blue is in Manhunter. It's all over the place. Yes. But nothing is, this is the, this is the essential Michael Mann shot. It is. You got a fucking gun. You got a guy in a suit. You got a, you know, an, an apartment in Malibu. You have a point of view shot that's right over his ear. Like, like this is the moment that like if if I was going to do a eulogy to Michael Mann I'd start or end with this shot and and exactly this is like his this is his the the career his career in one shot and his and yeah. and, the, and his sort of overarching themes and I love what you said about Neil is he's Neil is here and he's alone and he's lonely but there's also this yearning like this is what's great is like it sort of juxtaposes between sort of the homage <coughs> to the Alex Colville painting to this you know 21 minutes 31 seconds and you're bunched up really close intimate like to the face so you can see the prickles of his goatee and yep. you see you, you sort of why am I here why am I this close it sort of pans up to his eyes softens the focus on him in the foreground and goes to the ocean and yep. The ocean's not calming. That's what I love about this shot, Joe. Is I, every time I watch it, the ocean doesn't feel calming to me or like he's relaxing or like he's finding solace. It, it feels that traditional sort of philosophical sublime. Like he's looking out there, he's looking for something. And there's the ocean is wild here and he's looking for something beyond. And he might try and kid himself that he's looking for island life or a, a, a getaway in New Zealand. But I think here, that loneliness and that yearning that's where that level of unpredictability is for Neil. Is it just in this moment because he's yearning for this ocean? He's yearning for these tides. He's yearning for something that's out there that's not where he is. And so, I I just love this shot. I love I love everything about it. I love I, I absolutely adore it. And I, and again, not a single but it really word is, that, is spoken. A, yeah, nothing is spoken at all. It's and it's such a quintessential moment. Like we were talking before about how you know this would be a shot that you could easily take out. But I almost feel like if if you did take it out for time, 
when Neil ends up meeting Amy Brenneman's character later on, you know, in the coffee shop, I think it would have felt more abrupt. You needed to show it doesn't make that sense without this shot. Yeah, there, there's something that is missing, you know, or there's something where, like, and and again, if you juxtapose that with Neil looking out into darkness in the previous moment, yes, you're 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 here here with a guy that is always absolutely aware of his surroundings. You know, like, like mm-hmm. he says, it's like, I want, I got to scope out the entire place and know that I can get out of a, you know, a, a moment in 10, 10 seconds flat if the heat's around the corner. It's like, here's a guy who always sits with his back facing, you know, uh, you know, the wall when he goes and eats at a restaurant. Here's a guy that like deliberately has no accoutrements in his apartment because he doesn't want to leave a carbon footprint. He does not yeah. want to leave evidence. No loose ends. Yeah. And now he's got to live with it. He's the type of guy that I, I'm sure lives on, like sleeps on like one of those Japanese kabuki like <laughs> beds because it's the most economical and most efficient kind of bed possible. Probably has a stainless steel uh, refrigerator, which I'm sure we, I think we see later <laughs> on. No TV, no nothing. Like, nothing. like here's a guy that has kind of made his bed of isolation out of necessity, out of what he learned in prison, out of, out of discipline, and it served him well. But that comes with a catch. And yeah. that, that comes with, you know, again, it comes with repercussions and – that sense of cold loneliness that is like completely like beautifully ter- telegraphed in this scene without any words with you know merely the you know the amazing sound effect of that that gun hitting that like that steel tail like that steel desk or whatever that's and reflective of, and of like, everything else and it's like a little flurry Elliot Goldenthal score just this tiny little like it's it's this it's the most minor of almost like atmospheric tone setting pieces of the score in this second, like sort of that you can hear it in sort of a wind instrument um, that sets up. It, it almost sounds like it would be something that, uh, that Neil Macaulay would listen to to meditate. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It, it, it's, 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 it's part of his psyche at this point. And th- there is a, there's a kind of sad morose quality to what Elliot's doing in that moment, but it's not, hammering you over the head no. with, you know, like, Hey, this is how he's feeling. You know, like, <laughs> no, you don't, you don't need it. You know, no. just I mean, think about it. Two shots, two setups. Mm-hmm. Now those two setups, I'm sure took a day each knowing Michael Mann. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know personally, but, but like when you're in production, you know, it, it's all about time and it's all about like how many setups you can get in a day. And like, you know, I, I like on this last show that I was just doing, like I was doing like 30 or 40 setups a day. Yes. It's like I would have been past this fucking scene by <laughs> 9 a.m. But, but the, the, the intricate nature of and the detail that man puts into every moment here, you know, whether this was shot day for night, like he, he does like doing that a lot where yes. he's shooting day for night. And I think that's what this looks like where they just kind of heavily filtered it up. But it's two shots. It's no sound. It's or it's no dialogue. It's two beautifully composed shots. It's how he's. It's how the staging is. It's how the framing is. And you immediately dive into this character, where you know everything about him and everything where he is at that point. And then you cut to classic family life, or what we think is classic family life, <coughs> to basically show like the two sides of the coin here. It's like, yeah, the guy that is, you know, looking over his, his shoulder at every turn and he does well by it. And then you have the guy who's the, you know, the, the rogue and the wild card, but he's the one who's got the family life, you know? It, so both of these kind of sides of, 
of, of who these criminals are is so vital here because later on when we start getting deeper and deeper into all these characters, it just it's going to make every bullet hurt. It's going to make every decision be critical and it's going to make every character, you know, relate or oppose to the audience and make them feel like these are really fleshed out people, not just caricatures, you know, or no. or oppositions or foils. No, and and I think for this moment, it makes so much more sense for the Edie character. She's so organic. You know, when you look at, there's another scene just coming up where you see Justine facing off against Vincent, you know, sort of querying where he's been all day. You know, I'm trying to keep normalcy between us. And, and in that moment, Diane Venora's like, she's got a really fantastic posture. She's She looks formidable. She's wearing the black. She looks very meticulous in particular. And then you've got, you know, the, the sort of extravagance of um, of Charlene, played by Ashley Judd, but also she's very firm and stoic. Edie's, you know, long hair, floppy, loose-fitting clothes, designer, and it doesn't suit Neil's meticulousness. She's, she's tacky. Yeah, she's like, tacky, right? Ashley Judd, Ashley Judd is most of the women in Long Island in the 90s. <laughs> yes. And, or but, but, or but, like how, how Danielle, what was it, uh, Lorraine Bracco describes yes. all the women in Goodfellas. It's like the cheap <laughs> suits and the bad skin. Yes. And what's funny is later on when, when man is shooting super close-ups of Ashley Judd, it's like he's not very forgiving with that lens, no. but it, it just adds to how it makes her feel so real, you know, in that moment. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, that's per- no, it's perfect. But but then Brenneman is the opposite of Neil, so it feels like a lot of the wives and a lot of the partners are complementary in some ways um, here. And Amy Brenneman seems like the odd one out, but when you're looking at this scene, it kind of is reinforcing that he's that that, that yearning. He's 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 open. There's a, there is a crack. There is a crack in him that says, maybe everything that I'm doing, I need, you know, I need to do something more. I need to, I need to be more fulfilled than I am right this very minute. And, um, and, and that looking out here then sort of makes, makes you understand why he even would bother pursuing Amy Brenneman in the upcoming scenes. I think that's what I'm sort of viewing this as. What's really interesting though, is that like you bring that up and again, we we could just talk about this forever, but like, (laughs) The the thing that I think you brought up that was a really good point is that both of these scenes are acting as kind of truth facilitators because, you know, up until this point, we've known these guys as being these professionals, yes. you know, and, and nothing, correct me if I'm wrong, but nothing other than like what we've seen Vincent's home life has been anything about their life outside of the the periphery of their job right so these two scenes are both showing the same exact thing they think they have the perfect life and yet they don't they're they're going to constantly strive to make that final score or that big score that's going to take them to whatever tier of happiness that, that they think it is whether if it's a beachfront house in malibu or what looks like you know a, a beautiful a boogie, place in the, looks like a house Hollywood. with boogie nights. Looks like yeah, it looks it, it looks like a place either in like the, the Hollywood Hills or in like uh, you know in Studio City or whatever. But to you know to 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 Chris that was probably the image of success, and to Neil this was probably the perfect kind of like down low kind of success story that one could possibly have where he could hide his money money under the bed and be able to fucking ghost in 10 seconds flat. Yes. You know, these two scenarios are there 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 are goals that have already been achieved yet you look at by the end of each scene they're not happy. No. Oh, no, they're not, you know, and 
And I think, you know, and, and again, like to, to kind of bring it back to the editing and the structure of the editing, I don't think you could have been able to really convey that or present that to the audience without showing a moment of vulnerability. And the, in the previous minute, we've seen De Niro and, and Val Kilmer and Tom Sizemore and Danny Trejo as these fucking machines of crime. Yes. No stone unturned, no loose end. Everything is done like the fucking motif of the episode is meticulously. Yeah. And then, and then something goes wrong, mm-hmm. you know. Now, Sizemore didn't know that Slick was going to be the thing that TV guy was going to pick up on. So he doesn't even know that that's, you know, like a, a, a kind of a lead, if anything. But here, they're all faced with the idea that they're fucked. You yes. Know, or that... that Wow! Now we have to deal with this thing that we don't know how to deal with. It's like like we were saying before. It's like the flu, you know. It's like a virus. Yes. It's like nothing that you can do to prevent it. It's in the air. It's fucking outbreak, you know. And, yeah. and unless you have a hazmat suit on, <laughs> you know, or get the fuck out of town, you're it, it's going to permeate. It's going to find its way to permeate around you, uh, you know, or and sneak up on you if if need be. So the first moment of vulnerability that man shows with these characters. And then opens up their world and shows that they are normal people. Because if you had shown these two scenes before, I don't think it would have had the resonance as it, that they do now when we've shown that these characters are fallible and they do make mistakes. But what's, but what's great about that is with the audience is you not only then you see how perfect they are in the heist, you then see a failure, moments of vulnerability – and then there's a great scene that we're going <laughs> to talk about in future minutes where Vincent answers the phone and asks, immediately asks Casals, tell me Albert Torina called. And yep. Casals is calling him to say, you know, the shape charge. And so for it, there is a, there's something so beautiful in the structure that for a split second, you're like, whoa, Val Kilmer is a wild card. Oh, Val Kilmer does lose mm-hmm. his temper. Maybe... He messed up buying that shape charge. Maybe he bought it at the wrong place. Maybe it can be tracked. And for a half second, for a beat, you go, like, that could be wrong. And then Casals yep. is like, no, you can buy it anyway. And he goes, oh, that's wonderful. Bang, just hangs the phone up. But I love but that. that, that that's, dude, I, like, I tried that for a year where I tried to be fucking, you know, uh, Vincent Pacino cool, where I would just not say goodbye. Uh, you just hang up the phone. Joe, like, that's my that, dream. I've actually said that to my to my close relatives, my sister in particular. I I said from now on, when I answer the phone, I'm going to say go, and then I'm not going. When we're finished, I'm going to hang the phone up because I yeah, thought I'll just experiment up. with someone. And uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm nowhere near cool enough to pull that off. I kind of wish, in a way, in like in in the weird se- sequel to Heat, you know, even hotter. Um, I was always <laughs> hoping that the guy with the glasses who fucked up the heist or like the takedown later on in the movie yeah. ends up becoming kind of like the new member of the team because, <laughs> you know, uh, because Buffalo Bill got shot, Ted Levine's down. So they need to bring a new dude in. And that guy had a big gun and it's his first day on the job. And Pacino keeps doing that. And he turns to like West duty and goes, why does he keep hanging up on me? <laughs> and, and like West duty is like, it's something you have to get used to. You know, it, it's just, it's again, it's one of those like fantasy things. Cause like there, you could, you could keep going with this story, you know. Like I, like I, I remember when this movie was over and going like, this is just one. This is just one through line, you know. Like I want to know the further adventures of Joe. I have a theory. You know, these characters. I have a theory, Joe, and this All is right. going to fit in perfectly with our Chris Nolan's sort of. Uh, let's just call it like 
affection and gushing love of this movie. I think that Chris Nolan made Insomnia as like a Vincent Hanna sequel to like it, take to take dude, Vincent, to take Vincent Hanna to and Nolan is so goddamn bleak that he took is. him to the that he took him to that level. And so I, that's another. If I ever recommend people, I'm like, if you want to see like watch heat and then watch insomnia. That's like the Vincent Hanna character and Nolan, because Nolan is a bleak guy taking him down, you know, the person that he couldn't catch, he frames and then that haunts him to death. And the only way that he can reconcile it is to die and to let the truth come out. And so for me, I'm like, I'm always pitching like just silently, like, yeah, Vincent Hanna is pretty much, if you want to see the end of his story, watch insomnia with Robin Williams and Hilary Swank and Al Pacino. Well, take, take it a step even further. You can say that, Insomnia is the continuation of Vincent Hanna. The Dark Knight is technically Val Kilmer's character turned into <laughs> yeah. the, the Joker. Yes, it like, is. Like he's got nothing left and he decides, you know what? Let it all fucking burn at that point. <laughs> yes. Like I could to- you could totally see that character becoming the Joker at one point, you know, yes. when he's got nothing left. Because that's one of the beauties of that moment. And like, I hate to keep going ahead, but like – when you have that final moment and those weird kind of horns are playing in the background and he's so sad and he's got the blue, the blue comes up again and he's, he's sad and he's missing his wife. <laughs> it's like, I don't want to be where that guy is going to be next because, no. man, something bad is going to fucking happen. Yes. He's gonna, like, some, this is not going to end well for him. And like, who knows? Maybe someone slashed his fucking cheeks <laughs> and he decided to go on to an, in an anarchy rampage. But – yeah, like this movie again. Like I, I could, God, I could talk about this fucker forever. But no. <laughs> but oh, one thing that I want to mention too uh, that we that I want to mention because we talked about it before and you didn't know it or no, you you talked about it a little bit. But anybody who watches this movie again, watch it knowing that there is a version of this film where Pacino's character was chipping coke. This was confirmed at the screening that I went to and also confirmed on the, the new Blu-ray and DVD. But supposedly, and, and confirmed by both Pacino and Man. Michael Mann, yep. that Vincent was doing coke the whole movie. And that's why when you watch it, he's going, he's got a great ass. Like all those big moments that we just go like, that's Pacino. That's the character. He's, you know, he's got he's to be big and be intimidating in front of these people. No, he's fucking gacked out of his brain. <laughs> supposedly, supposedly, the studio or someone said, you got to let that shit go. That's all got to go. We have America's sweetheart, Al Pacino. America's, you know, uh, favorite old fart, Al Pacino, is <laughs> you know, an Oscar winner now. And, you know, and we can't have our hero being a coke addict. You know, and I get it. I totally get it. But, man, watch Heat again thinking that, that Pacino is, is fucking high on coke. Vincent's it is having a, a little bump. Holy, it is a wholly new experience. Yes. You know, and for the amount of times that you and I have watched this movie, <laughs> I guarantee you, the, the night that I went home, and, no, that the yeah, because I had just seen the movie on the big screen with Michael Mann, and then he mentioned that, I'm like, what? And then the Blu-ray <laughs> came two days later. I immediately, dude, I watched it two days before. I immediately put it on just to watch it with those kind of Coke, I, I, you know, Coke, <laughs> Coke tinged glasses, and <laughs> man, is it a different performance? But it's still brilliant, you know. And and whether still that brilliant. decision was made by man or the studio, or whatever, it's it's just one of those things that infuses the the movie with so much nuance that it deserves a podcast 
called one heat minute. <laughs> well, I couldn't, I couldn't end it any better than that, guys. This has been Joe Lynch, two minutes and two of the funnest minutes I think I've done in this. Two of the longest time. minutes. Two of the longest. Oh, two of the longest, but two of the funnest <laughs> minutes. I've had an absolute blast. I hope you have too. Joe is definitely coming back for another minute in the middle of that heist because we're going to unpack that. Joe, thank you so much for being part of oh one heat minute. It was a total pleasure. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, if you can check out Mayhem with Stephen Yun and Samara Weaving, uh, it's out in theaters in the in the states, I believe now, uh, depending on when this comes out. Uh, but it's also going to be on iTunes and VOD. It'll be all over the world very soon. Uh, and also, uh, if you like listening to me enough, uh, I have a podcast called The Movie Crypt with my fellow filmmaker Adam Green. Uh, we have a bunch of guests on. It's it's filmmakers, artists, everybody. It's us just jibber jabbering and geeking out for two hours. Uh, we're not talking about one specific <laughs> minute in a movie, but uh, but we get pretty in depth. But uh, but if you like podcasts like you do, uh, like you like Blake's. Uh, check out uh, the movie Crypt. It's out there somewhere. Guys, on the One Heat Minute, um, on the One Heat Minute website, if you're listening to this just via your <laughs> iTunes, I'll put a link up to Joe's podcast. And if I've got Mayhem information up that, there and Samara Weaving, you can check out Samara Weaving. We talked about her in The Babysitter right now on Netflix. But this has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much um, for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe, both podcasts, um, Movie Crypt with, uh, uh, with Joe and Adam and obviously One Heat Minute. Um, thank you, Garth Franklin, for our website design. Thank you, Paul Davies for our music and uh, thank you so much for listening Joe this has been an absolute absolute pleasure once again thank you so much sir I can't wait for the next one this is the story of the one as a maintenance engineer he hears things differently to the untrained ear everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping so he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand and he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.